This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Hey, Darren. A lot has been happening both in Australia and around the world over the past two weeks, so there is a lot for us to cover. We're going to begin today with the restrictions announced by the Trump administration on the sale of technology to Chinese company Huawei and what this means for US-China competition and indeed the rest of us. Shifting gears entirely, we'll turn to a scandal in Papua New Guinea and the resignation of its Prime Minister. Third, we have four election results to reflect upon briefly, here at home of course, India, Indonesia and the European Union. Fourth, Australia will have a couple of ex-politicians as new ambassadors as part of the renewal of the Morrison government, so I'm going to ask Alan about that. And finally, we'll remember Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Okay, let's get started. So the biggest story of the day has to be in the field of US-China relations. A few weeks ago, the Trump administration effectively barred US companies and government agencies from doing business with Chinese technology champion Huawei. An executive order restricted any transaction of information communication technology, ICT, products or services linked to a, quote, foreign adversary, deemed to pose an, quote, unacceptable risk to the national security of the United States. While the Commerce Department then placed Huawei and its affiliates on its entity list, which means US firms and foreign companies selling products that contain US component must require a license from the US government before trading with Huawei. The following week, the US government issued some temporary waivers, essentially to allow business relating to the reliability of existing networks to continue, but prohibiting commerce relating to the production of new products. In reaction to all this, stock markets fell and private companies began to react. For example, Microsoft pulled Huawei devices from its online store and there is a good possibility that Google will uh, prevent its Android software being used in Huawei devices into the future, though there is still some uncertainty about this. Alan, we have talked about some of these issues in previous editions of the podcast, so can I just get your initial reaction to this news to begin? I think it shows how fast the idea of technological decoupling is uh, gathering speed. We don't know where the end point to any of this will be, but with each iteration of the competition, it's being pushed further to a point of confrontation that has surprised me, as I've noted before. Mm. Well, let me ask my next question in a bit of a different way, given this is an ongoing story. If you were Foreign Minister Payne or, or perhaps a senior bureaucrat like DFAT Secretary Francis Adamson, what would you be trying to learn about right now? Like, What information would you be asking your department to get for you? Well, I, I guess three main questions. For the Washington Embassy, uh, you'd be asking what is the US objective? Is this part of a Trump negotiating ploy designed to put pressure on Beijing or is it now emerging as settled US policy? And secondly, what will the Americans expect their allies to do in response? Mm. 
And we've had some hints of that from Secretary Pompeo. Uh, secondly, for, for the Beijing embassy, uh, how do the Chinese interpret these moves? Uh, do they see the American decisions as negotiable or as the beginning of mm. the breaking of all supply chains in the uh, tech area? And what response are they planning? And finally, for our analysts and officials back here, uh, of course, what does it mean for Australia? Which parts of our economy are going to be affected? What are the consequences for us if uh, uh, and our exports if Chinese markets uh, shrink? And uh, how are other countries, you know, in a similar position to us going to respond? But you and Victor published a great piece on the Lowy Interpreter on this very subject. So what, why don't you take us through how you see it? Yes, uh, Victor, of course, is my PhD student here at the ANU. And what jumped out at us from this news is what we see as a fundamental contradiction in the Trump administration's policy. On one level, you have national security concerns, and we've talked about these in previous episodes. You're worried about Huawei being part of your network. You're worried about Chinese companies acquiring or stealing valuable intellectual property. And you know, the Americans might even be worried about great power rivalry and technological supremacy. So you have national security being used as a justification for limiting commerce with Huawei and potentially bringing the company down. And I'm sure there are some in the national security community who would like to see that outcome happen. But that isn't the only goal here. Remember, there is also a trade war happening and one of the central justifications for the tariffs imposed by the Trump administration and a justification that is supported by America's partners in Europe and across the OECD is the need for China to reform its economy, to open up, for example, to implement the simple principle of reciprocity. You know, China has benefited from the openness of the rest of the world over the past 20 plus years. And now the rest of the world wants to do business with China and in China on fair and equal terms. So we're talking the scaling back of state subsidies, the elimination of discrimination against foreign companies who operate in China, and ideally the evolution of China's legal system from one in which the Chinese Communist Party heavily manages outcomes to one in which the judiciary is far more impartial. So you have these two objectives. The problem is reducing commerce with China for national security reasons completely undermines the objective of liberalising China's economy. Further liberalisation would require the Chinese government to have more faith in the integrity of global markets, that it could access what it needs from you know, international commerce and that the heavy hand of government isn't necessary because market forces can power economic development into the 21st century. And that's obviously an ideology or a belief that we have here in Australia. We have faith in markets, more or less. But what the Huawei decision says is, nope, you know, your interdependence with the West and with the United States in particular makes you vulnerable to these kinds of decisions. And therefore, you need to scale up state control of your economy, close yourself off further from foreign competition, and develop the autonomy necessary to secure your national interests. So this is what Victor and I call in the Lowy interpreter piece a decoupling dilemma. Many in the West want to decouple supply chains as a matter of national security, but in doing so, that will only encourage a more state-driven approach to economic management and really extinguish any prospect of liberalisation. Now, the response could be, 
especially from the national security community, that we hoped China would reform following its WTO entry, but it hasn't. And so our hands have been forced. And I'm sympathetic to that criticism. But if the response is completely walking away from this multi-decade project to integrate China into the global system, you might end up creating a more dangerous environment and greater threats to your national security with a untrusting and even cornered Chinese Communist Party. To be clear, I'm not advocating for one side or the other, but I think, and we try to express this in the piece, that the consequences haven't fully been thought through. Do you have any thoughts on this, Alan? One small point to note really is just that one of the criticisms the US makes of China is that its private companies follow the instructions of the government in pursuit of broader geoeconomic ambitions. But as we can see in this case, China is not alone in having a government mm. which requires its companies to follow its bidding in pursuit of large national aims. I think we're still treating this too much as a US-China issue only. They're the two principles, of course, but the arena on which this is being played out is global. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how will everyone else respond to this drawing of a digital iron curtain, as it's been called? I imagine most states are not going to want to follow the US lead. You know, Huawei offers very attractive, the most attractive prices. And for most countries who are focused on economic development, 5G technology in particular is a core element of their own economic plans. You know, their highest priority across the developing world is going to be price, speed of construction and reliability. It's not that they won't care at all about information security, but I suspect it will be low enough down on their list of priorities that economic concerns will, will trump the day, will overwhelm it. So I, I want to understand the factors that will go into determining the level of engagement with Chinese technology. Vietnam and Australia have decided to keep Huawei out of their 5G networks, for example. Germany and the UK appear to be more cautious and look like they will allow some involvement on a case-by-case -case basis and try to manage the risks. And other countries, for example, it seems like Thailand will be all in. And the question I have, I think we both have, is what factors will drive these decisions? And a good research project, I think, for, for students out there. Anyway, let's move on for something in a completely different direction to our own backyard uh, with Papua New Guinea, where for months a political crisis has been brewing with Prime Minister Peter O'Neill steadily losing support in Parliament as lawmakers from his own ruling coalition resigned and defected to the opposition. In early May this month, O'Neill used a still slim majority to push through a three-week adjournment of Parliament, delaying a no-confidence vote. Then last week, an investigative report by Angus Grigg, Lisa Murray and Jonathan Shapiro of the Australian Financial Review revealed that O'Neill had sacked his then treasurer in 2014 in order to push through a deal in which the government would buy a stake in the Australian company Oil Search, both to defend against a foreign takeover, but also for Oil Search to in turn buy a stake in PNG's gas fields, which is leading to a much bigger LNG project likely being approved this year. A report by the PNG Ombudsman outlined $400 million in losses and multiple irregularities in this project, including the bypassing of parliamentary approval. It seems likely that the scale of this financial mismanagement will put PNG in a financial crisis for a long time, a financial mess, I'm sorry, for a long time to come. Then, Last week, O'Neill said he would resign 
and planned for Sir Julius Chan to take over as Prime Minister, which would be his third time in the office. However, as of today, it remains to be seen who has the numbers in Parliament. Alan, why is this an important story for Australia? When you and I were first talking about this emerging issue, you said you didn't know much mm. about PNG. Yes, <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's that's both interesting and important in its own right because it's um, indicative of the way most Australians, even those who you know like us, are working in this whole area of international relations, now think or don't think about our nearest neighbour. And, and it is near. I mean, PNG is uh, less than four kilometres distant from the closest Australian territory in the Torres Strait. Uh, it's got a population of 7.6 million and growing by more than 3% a year. That means that it may reach Australia's size by mid-century. Uh, it has obviously uh, rich mineral and other resources, but in 2016 it ranked 154th on the United Nations Development Program's Human Development Index and 136th in Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. Uh, maternal mortality rates are double those of the targets in the UN Millennium Development uh, Goals. So the way PNG is governed matter, matters a great deal to us. If things go wrong badly, either in a security or a political or economic or humanitarian terms, uh, the, the consequences are going to be felt by us. Um, over the past few years, we've had an additional interest in, in PNG and the offshore processing facilities on Annis. And this has given PNG and its politicians, both the national ones and the local ones, an increasing degree of leverage over Australia. Now, it's hard to prove this, but I think Australia has been less willing to energetically pursue uh, criticisms of corruption and erosion of good governance in PNG because of those other interests. As to what happens, I learnt many years ago during a period working as a PNG analyst, never to predict political outcomes in PNG. I got a couple of spectacularly wrong. Uh, and despite its problems, it remains a messy, vigorous uh, democracy. So I can't hazard a guess as to whether the opposition will bring Peter O'Neill down in a vote of no confidence next week. But either way, this is going to be an ongoing problem for the returned Australian government. And if a new PNG government if uh, O'Neill is replaced and a new PNG government does begin to investigate the oil search deal, there are going to be implications for Australian companies and regulators as well. Mm, mm. Perhaps one of the reasons PNG has never come across my own radar is I have never been in the development community, I guess you would call it. I mean, my background is macroeconomics and, of course, national security. And what strikes me as interesting from your comments is it now feels like development specialists need not need to be not only experts in specific fields like health or education, community development and so forth, as well as the broader economics and politics of development, but they also need to understand the interaction of development and aid issues with geopolitics and even great power competition. Do you have any reflection on this, Alan, you know, on how to increase our capacity, not just in, in PNG, but in the Pacific more broadly? 
And I guess an unrelated question, we have a large mission in PNG, if I understand. What kind of diplomats are there? Well, it is a big mission with a very large, uh, obviously, development and defence component, as well as a substantial uh, political section. Um, it's interesting as a diplomatic posting, because in the Australian system anyway, you, you, there's, none, no, there's no uh, head of mission job where you get as close to the political centre of the country mm. as you do if you're accredited in Port Moresby. You write about development specialists needing to be aware of the broader international context they're working in, and that, I guess, was one of the ambitions of melding DFAT and AusAid. Mm. But it operates the other way as well. You, you simply can't address the geopolitical challenges in the South Pacific without understanding how development works. Uh, if, if the national security specialists had understood development better, we might have had different outcomes in Afghanistan or Iraq. One, one really interesting new twist has been the appointment of uh, Alex Hawke as Minister for International Development and the Pacific and as Assistant Minister for Defence, helping to drive the, uh, the Pacific step-up agenda. We've had ministers for the Pacific before, but I can't remember a similar example of a cross-posting between the DFAT and defence portfolios like this. So it's going to be a, an interesting experiment. Indeed. Well, something to keep an eye on. Okay, turning to our third segment, and I guess that's a good introduction because we have at least four election results to cover so let's try to make this a bit of a lightning round, Alan. I'll get a quick reaction from you regarding the outcome of each, and then I'll follow up with one quick question that relates to something that jumped out at me. First, Australia, the re-election of the centre-right coalition government led by Scott Morrison. Alan, your reaction? Uh, well, clearly a surprise <laughs> to almost everyone, including the parties, the press and the pollsters. In this area, there's going to be a good deal of continuity. Maurice Payne remains as Foreign Minister, Linda Reynolds uh, as foreshadowed uh, as Defence Minister and Simon Birmingham uh, as Minister for Trade. And that actually gets to my question, which is about Linda Reynolds, the incoming Minister of Defence. Uh, she, she's you know, an ex-military person. She served in the Army uh, reserve for 29 years and rose to the rank of, of brigadier. And the senator is our first defence minister with military experience for a very long time since Jim Kellen left the portfolio in 1982. Are there any notable advantages and or risks to former ADF members leading a civilian institution like the Defence Department? Well, I don't have any uh, problem in principle with a now former um, brigadier taking on the position of Minister for uh, Defence. Uh, the problem, if there is one, will be cultural. It'll be a matter of the minister's own determination to see herself in a new position rather than as part of a you know military cha chain of command and presiding over both uniformed officers and civilians. And look, from what I've seen of Senator Reynolds, I think this, she should be able to manage this transition uh, pretty easily. Okay, well, allow me to ask one more follow-up. What can we expect to see on Australia's foreign policy agenda? You know, but the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister now have a full term you know, to grow into the role of statespeople. Any hunches about what that might mean for Australian foreign policy? As we talked about before, the election campaign didn't really yield any um, information about the coalition's next term no. agenda in this area, except I suppose a, continu a continuation of what's going on. But the world 
doesn't really care about that, and the challenges are already mounting up, including in China and PNG, as we've talked about. Uh, the Prime Minister has begun actively on the international front. He's got visits to the Solomon Islands at the weekend and then the United Kingdom for D-Day celebrations and Singapore. And he's got the G20 at the end of the month in uh, Osaka. His visit to Solomon Islands uh, is interesting, the first by an Australian Prime Minister for more than a decade, I think. Mm. Uh, it's intended pretty clearly from the uh, news reports of the announcement, and which were obviously um, written as a result of backgrounding, mm. uh, as a response to Chinese activities in the region. Uh, that sort of uh, emphasis is going to make it harder, I suspect, for the government to reboot the relationship with China, which remains in a state of suspended animation. I thought it was interesting, though, that um, even during the campaign, the Secretary of uh, DFAT, Francis Adamson, represented Australia at the Belt and Road Forum in uh, Beijing. And in a speech there, she used language which had obviously been cleared by the government, suggesting a po possible softening of the Australian position on the BRI. Uh, she said Australia wanted to continue to strengthen engagement with China on projects that align with international standards of governance, transparency and sustainability, and that her discussions in Beijing would contribute to future engagement with China on the BRI. So we'll see where that leads. Mm, indeed. Okay, next up, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his BJP party are re-elected it seems, with an increased majority, the first time that that, that that has happened since 1984. Alan, your reaction? Oh, look, it was a remarkable victory and a sign of how very deeply uh, Indian politics have changed. The BJP has a majority in its own right, and the Indian Congress of Gandhi and Nehru was utterly humiliated. Indeed, Rahul uh, Gandhi lost a seat that had been held by his family back to his grandfather. Modi's victory came on a wave of nationalist sentiments after terrorist attacks by a Pakistan-backed uh, group in Kashmir that we talked about here, mm. and on the basis of Modi's own long association with Hindu majoritarian positions. I think in, in foreign policy terms, we can expect India's international ambitions and engagement to grow under Modi. But if India is to genuinely become a great power rather than simply a big power, he's going to face a very tough economic challenge to keep growth going and the huge labour force employed. He came to office uh, declaring himself a, an economic reformer and the results of the first term have been mixed but with his strong political position, there's nothing now to prevent him pressing ahead in the new area of reform. And the question is whether he will have the courage to do that. Mm. My follow-up question, uh, in her January speech at the Racina Dialogue, Australian Foreign Minister Maurice Payne said that Australia welcomes India's leadership of the Indian Ocean. How much leadership is needed, do you think, Alan? Uh, I think she said India's leadership in the Indian nation rather than there's a subtle but important uh, difference there, Darren. Uh, oh, yes, um, indeed. I stand corrected and apologies to the minister. I, I, was at the, I was at the Ricina Dialogue the year before this and in a private meeting with a group of Australians, a retired Indian Navy officer told us, he said, there's a reason it's called the Indian Ocean, you know. <laughs> So there's no doubt that India has a comprehensive view of its role in the ocean. Um, India's 
Indo-Pacific, unlike Australia's, begins in East Africa. You asked about the question of leadership, and that's complicated, just as China has its own complex relationship with its neighbours, so does India. So it's got to work its way through other states of the region Mm. which are keeping an eye on India. For Australia's part, we want to see, as the Foreign Policy White Paper said, India's support for an open inclusive and rules-based region. And that's, of course, increasingly important as China's influence and uh, interests spread around the Indian Ocean, literal. Mm. Well, moving on to our third election, Indonesian President Joko Widodo uh, is successfully re-elected, defeating former Army General Prabowo Subianto. Alan, your reaction? Well, of course, it was much more welcome than a Prabowo victory would have been. (laughs) And despite Prabowo's pretensions uh, and protests, it was a sizable victory, uh, 55.5% to 44.5%. Okay, well, if I can ask this question, to me, Jokowi and Modi share some fascinating similarities and also contrasts. They share similar humble beginnings, not coming from their country's military or political elites. You know, Jokowi was a furniture exporter and Modi started his working life selling tea as part of his family business. But they have, to me, it seems like it taken a different line on religion. Jokowi's opponent was the one, Prabowo, who, who took a hard line stance on Islam, while Modi's Hindu nationalist leanings are well known. I wonder, Alan, is there any point in trying to identify patterns in political dynamics across our region when it comes to elections? Well, they're they're both very different leaders from those who've gone before them. Um, I I wouldn't make as much of the differences between them on religion, though. Jokowi's had to pay careful attention to political Islam in order to get elected. Uh, We saw earlier during his term the way he edged away from his former colleague, the Chinese Christian governor of uh, Jakarta, Ahok, after he was charged with blasphemy against the Quran and attacked by conservatives. And we saw it again in the fact that he felt it necessary to appoint as his vice presidential running mate, the Islamic uh, cleric uh, Maruf Amin. I think more interesting really is the transition of both India and Indonesia away from the secular democracy, both of them championed as leaders of the non-aligned movement uh, under Congress and uh, Nehru in India, and the uh, Panchasila uh, doctrine of Sukarno and Suharto. In both countries, the role of religion has increased as a way of defining the state And that's going to have consequences for their international identities Mm. over time. Uh, But, Darren, there's another set of elections that's been going on, and you've been following those, those for the uh, EU Parliament. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, so they, of course, they happened this past weekend, and I see three main takeaways. First, there was a big surge in turnout, the highest in decades. I think EU politics is seen as mattering more and finally now, and is seen as speaking more to concerns at the local level. I think this is a positive for the EU on net, since people need to engage both with the benefits and the challenges of deep interdependence on the continent and the role that the EU plays in keeping the continent together. I think part of the problem with Brexit, the reason the Brexit vote happened was a lack of understanding and engagement with the immense benefits of EU membership. Yeah, there was a focus on the costs, but not so much on the benefits. These are a bit more hidden. And I think 
these elections signal that you know, mass publics are paying more attention, and I think that's a good thing. The second is that the major parties did very poorly. You know, the Conservatives got less than 10% of the vote in, in the UK. Labor did poorly as well. Merkel's Christian Democrats in Germany. The Republicans and Socialists in France are almost gone. And I think this reflects a real frustration with the most institutionalised political movements or parties across the continent. And I think that's a lesson for major parties everywhere around the world. But third, and, and having said that, while you know, people predicted that the far-right populist parties would do very well, while they did improve their position, they are still a long way away from gaining control. And balancing the gains of the far-right were advances by the Greens and the pro-business Liberals both of whom are essentially pro-European parties. And I do wonder whether the old left versus right divide is collapsing in Europe to be replaced with a divide based on open versus closed as the dominant political ideologies. And I think that's crystallised or manifest most clearly in the Brexit dynamic right now. And I think that's the last thing I want to say as a sort of a fourth point, I suppose. I, I often listen to an excellent podcast from the BBC called Brexit Cast, uh, and I'll, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. And, the, and on the night of the elections, they recorded an episode in which they aired highlights from several hours of radio discussions on the BBC discussing the results. And if you fast forward to about 18 minutes and 30 seconds into the episode, they play a debate between two uh, UK MPs, you know, part of the UK Parliament, not the EU Parliament. One uh, from the Tories is a hard Brexiteer, and the other is a soft Brexiteer. I think he was from the Labour Party. And if you, when you listen to the debate and you try and to score it, you know the hard Brexiteer absolutely destroys the softie with an impressive but also deeply troubling display of populist rhetoric and sophistry. And this is despite the fact that you know, the, you know she's making these arguments despite the fact that pro-Remain parties actually captured a higher overall percentage of the, of the vote in the EU elections in, in, in Britain. And I think it really illustrates the challenges of countering populism because it is so much easier to articulate a simple populist message because they are always so simple. And you know, trying to respond to that as this soft Brexiteer does with a complex policy platform uh, that involves a compromise between the two poles of those who want to remain and those who want a hard Brexit is just very difficult to do and often does not cut through to the public. So I sort of recommend this little excerpt of the podcast to our listeners to really encapsulate the challenge, I think, of countering populism around the world. And perhaps it may be true that you just need to let populists take charge and see what happens because I do wonder that unless a hard Brexit actually occurs and then is a disaster, you're never going to convince the 25 to 35% of the UK voting public that it's a bad idea. Do you have any reaction Alan? Well, it's a big it, that's a big <laughs> a big price to pay, but having listened to the podcast on your recommendation, you uh, you may be right about it. Uh, look, I just want to say one one thing in in response to you your comment about the new open versus closed mm. uh, debate going on. I th I think Australia is really interesting in this regard. Both major political parties here still declare in their speeches and party manifestos in the foreign policy white paper and everything we've seen from both sides of politics 
a commitment to openness in all its forms, economic and uh, social. And that makes us very unusual internationally at the moment, and we'll have to hope it continues. Yes, I think you know, perhaps because we haven't had to pay some of the heavy prices of openness, you know, being an island continent, it is particularly on the issue of, 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 of migration and, and, and refugees, those pressures just aren't there. Uh, and that's still, even in even given the, the lack of real pressure, you know, Pauline Hansen's you know, message still cuts through to a you know not a small percentage of the population. So again, another reason why we're the lucky country, I guess, that has helped preserve our politics as much as it has helped fuel our economic you know, success. Yeah, no, that, well, that's right. One Nation was 3.5% or something mm. of first preference votes. So we're a long way there from many parts of Europe. Mm, mm. Okay, well, our fourth story, another quick one, you know, let's let's talk about the appointment of two new ambassadors. So as part of Prime Minister Morrison's post-election cabinet reshuffle, he made the announcement of two appointments to, firstly, to the new, the new US ambassador who's going to be former Senator Arthur Sinodinos, uh, and then our UN ambassador in New York will be the former Senator Mitch Fifield. So, Alan, any any comment on these uh, political appointments to these ambassadorial positions? There have always been places for political appointments uh, to the diplomatic service, and some of them have been excellent, but the rate does seem to have increased in recent years. At present, I think our heads of mission in uh, Washington, London, Tokyo, Wellington... Uh, heads of post in Chicago and Houston are all ex-politicians. Arthur Sinodinos, at least, will bring to the Washington job a powerful combination of experience at the centre of government and in the public service as well. The really important thing in Washington is that the ambassador is always able to speak with the authority of the Prime Minister and uh, Senators will certainly be able to do that. As for New York, I suppose all you can say is that the government hasn't exactly announced an act of multilateralist mm. agenda, so the absence of a professional like uh, Gary Quinlan, Quinlan there probably won't matter so much. I, th I think the most unusual thing about this was the way it was done. These diplomatic appointments were announced in a statement by the PM along with the ministerial appointments. I don't remember that happening before, and it has echoes of the American system where the ambassador to the UN is also a cabinet member. Uh, as someone who believes deeply in the importance of foreign policy and diplomacy in their own right, I do hope this was a one-off. Mm. I wonder, Alan, if we are seeing Australia sort of transform into a milder version of the logic of ambassadorial appointments in the US, you know, which simplified i think becomes a question of do you want an experienced diplomat or do you want someone who the president in the us's case likes and trusts you made the point in your answer just then about you know, arthur sinodinos as us ambassador who will be speaking with the authority of the prime minister and and his confidence you know, might this start to apply to more and more missions you know is the number of cases where having someone the pm likes or trusts is going to be important. You know, is the number of cases where that is a factor, in fact, rising? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think it is rising. I think there are a number of particular cases where that is true, and having someone, the PM or the minister, trusts is helpful in places like Washington or in in uh, Wellington, where we've got a new high commissioner as well. But I'm inclined to look more cynically to political patronage rather than <laughs> diplomatic needs for the uh, other appointments, Darren. Interesting. 
Okay, finally for today, on the eve of the Australian election, former Prime Minister Bob Hawke passed away at the age of 89. Of course, Hawke served as Prime Minister from 1983 until 1991. Alan, you wrote a lovely piece in the Lowy Interpreter on his foreign policy legacy. Can you give us your personal perspective on what lessons we can learn from his worldview and his career? I first met Hawke when I was a young diplomat in Singapore and he was the president of the ACTU. I was on airport duty, which was a, <laughs> uh, a perennial curse if you're in, in Singapore in, the, in those days in particular. And I had to take him back to his hotel during a transit stop. Uh, we encountered a large group of Australian tourists in the hotel foyer. And even now I can, I can remember the immediate effect Hawke had on them and the effect that they had on him, the exchange of energy he got from those sort of interactions was almost physical. And this was, as I say, before he became mm. uh, PM. As I, I wrote in The Interpreter, Australia has never had a prime minister who believed in the power of human agency and especially his own, <laughs> uh, like, like Bob Hawke. Um, there's a great story I, I was told by one of his staffers. They're, they're on a visit to the Great Wall of China when Hawke was uh, PM and the group's tour guide noted that the wall was the only man-made object to be visible from the moon. I don't suppose the Prime Minister's ego counts as a man-made object, my member of uh, Hawke's staff uh, muttered <laughs> in the background. Uh, but but look, this this is this is good. I mean, uh, you need uh, you need political leaders need need solid egos, and this confidence made him entirely comfortable in surrounding himself with other strong-minded ministers like Bill Hayden, Gareth Evans, and Kim Beasley. He was enormously hardworking and a superb chair of cabinet. His foreign policy legacy is very substantial. He really saved the U.S.-Australia alliance from the sort of breach that occurred with New Zealand in those years. He can claim real influence in bringing an end to apartheid in South Africa through the financial sanctions that he persuaded others to introduce. He got APEC going. He had a deep and rewarding relationship with uh, China, uh, tragically derailed for a time after the Tiananmen massacre. He was the first Australian Prime Minister to take the environment seriously. He appointed our first uh, ambassador for the environment and was instrumental in... Um, establishing Antarctica as a wilderness area free of mining. I was um, a public servant in his department at the time, and like all my colleagues, I really appreciated the professionalism with which he engaged the public service. He, he respected the role of public servants and used them well. And he, reflecting that, he chose as his chiefs of staff a number of Australia's most um, impressive diplomats, including Sandy Holway and Dennis Richardson. Mm, indeed. Well, thank you for that, Alan. Okay, turning to our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment? I, I figured if you could uh, choose Game of Thrones the other week, uh, Darren, multiple I'd go times, with some... Multiple times, multiple times. <laughs> multiple times. I'd go with something I've been listening to over and over during the past couple of weeks, and that's a great new album by the American group, uh, The National, called I Am Easy to Find. This is a stressful time in the world. So when uh, Matt Berninger, the lead singer, sings, I, I'm just so tired of thinking about everything, I respond, I know how you feel. <laughs> uh, but despite that, the, the layers and textures and the sheer expansiveness of the album uh, leave you hopeful in the end that diversity 
and disintegration are not the same thing. And I'm going to cling to that hope. <laughs> well, lest this become a a, po- a podcast on on music <laughs> criticism, I will say that while I haven't heard this album, Alan, you know, Fake Empire, which is a song of theirs from around a decade ago, uh, is one of my favourites. I would recommend that to our listeners. For my recommendation, I I fell down a bit of a internet rabbit hole a few weeks ago after it emerged that the Austrian uh, vice chancellor, the second in charge of the country but also the leader of the far-right nationalist party, Heinz Christian Straher, was the victim of an incredibly elaborate sting operation in which he was recorded on camera in the Spanish resort island of Ibiza um, saying some very foolish things. Uh, And for Australians, if you think of the Al Jazeera fake NRA sting that caught out some One Nation people recently, think of an equivalent to that. And as a result of... This, you know, this video and audio coming out, he was forced to resign and that set off a chain of events that ultimately brought down the government um, and there's been a no-confidence motion in the, in the president uh, or the chancellor um, and we have new elections you know, being called. Now, the rabbit hole that I fell down relates to trying to work out who actually set him up and why. And it all has a bit of a whiff of conspiracy theory about it, except for the fact that the sting very much happened. And so there is a question of who was behind it. Was it a foreign intelligence service? Was it a political adversary? And the latest uh, that I have read seems to be that it was actually all just done for profit, you know, rather than weaponized espionage. It was some people who were trying to use this to extort money out of him or indeed to sell, uh, I think more likely, to sell this salacious story to the highest bidder. So, you know, really don't know what actually happened, but what I'll do is I'll post a couple of links in the show notes to some blog posts in which some sort of technical experts try to go through, you know, what actually happened and talk about some of the, the espionage theory behind it all. As the saying goes, it's stranger than fiction. Okay, well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAA intern Charlie Henshaw for his help with the audio editing today and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you again soon.